If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This, of course, is a podcast that examines and unpacks all 166 pre-credits minutes of Michael Mann's incredible 1995 crime opus Heat, my favorite film of all time. We've also just had a little bit of a dalliance going into the world of literature for a very rare moment, talking about New York Times bestseller Heat 2, which we unpacked in six parts. And if you're listening to this, hopefully you got a chance to hear three special bonus episodes where the cast of our Heat 2 book club have fantasy cast Heat 2. I'm going to do a bit of fantasy casting because today is a special one. I have an Edgar and Barry award-winning author of both China Lee and Unsub and about 14 or 15, if you consider this novel, other acclaimed and best-selling novels. I have a Stanford University graduate and law school graduate. You want to know who I'm looking at? Well, on page 403 of her latest novel, the continuation of the story of my favorite film that she co-authored with the legendary Michael Mann, who you've heard on this show, Eat 2, there's a quote that describes how I'm feeling. It reads, Vincent Hanna about falls through the floor. And as I'm talking to a three-time Jeopardy champion, who is Meg Gardner, Alex? That's right. I have Meg Gardner on one heat minute. The stars have aligned. I've opened the locket and here is your face. Meg, it is such a pleasure to talk to you on one heat minute. Thank you, Blake. It's wonderful to be here. So let's get started. How has the ride been? Because, you know, I think if I'd talk to you 
a month before this had come out, if I'd talked to you a week after it had come out, I, I, it would be strange. It's now been some time since the release of the novel. And I imagine that it has been a phenomenal wave. How are you feeling right now? Great. The ride has been like uh, getting on a roller coaster and realizing there's a Saturn V booster <laughs> attached to the back of it. So it, uh, it's been uh, amazing and wonderful. Uh, the book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which is uh, beyond a dream come true. It is absolutely phenomenal to see how not just critics, but... Uh, but readers are connecting with the book in in such a in such a great way. It's extremely rewarding, and I'm absolutely delighted that this very ambitious and special project is uh, connecting with everybody so well. So how how long has heat been in your life? So let's skip the book. Let's talk about you. You have written a bunch of obviously critically acclaimed and best-selling novels and you were like if i believe i'm I, i've researched this correctly you're like the chair of like the mystery and thriller society um uh, in, uh is that right is that what it's called i was uh, the president of mystery writers of america for three years so, there you go yeah. the president of mystery writers of america when you're growing up consuming everything maybe uh where does heat sit? Like, was it something, was it a film? Was Michael Mann a filmmaker that you were like, this is a great touchstone. This is a great piece of movie, uh, you know, crime thriller, or was it something that you came to later? How did, how did heat and Meg intersect? Cause I think people are probably sick to death of me personally talking about how important it is to me. And I think every person that I've spoken to along the one heat minute journey, has like an amazing array of stories, like whether it was something they watched with their dad or was it something they discovered with their friends or whether they, you know, were so already dialed into Pacino, De Niro, that like they were out the front, you know, my friend Sean lining up in Boston in 1995 in freezing cold, looking at two pictures of New York guys on an LA movie poster, like going, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I'm so excited. Like, can, do you have a, a heat origin story? Heat exploded <laughs> into the world when I was already a huge fan of Michael Mann and anything that he touched. Yes. I was a fan of his work before I ever even was smart enough to understand how to read the credits <laughs> something and know what he was what he was doing. I watched the Jericho Mile, which was a uh, a television movie in the United States uh, with the Peter Strauss set in Folsom prison about uh, a runner. And uh, at the, you know, I had been a, a middle distance runner. So of course I was going to watch that and was just absolutely absorbed by it, gobsmacked by the, by it. Then came uh, Miami vice of course. And it was uh, so, so hard for people to understand how unbelievably massive that show was. It, it like it, the show that changed every show and every crime movie basically after, after that time. Exactly. And, and now in retrospect, you can look at it and say, 
this is when we should have known we were in the eighties and this was something different. <laughs> we, so should was known. we should have <laughs> known we were in that. It wasn't Reagan. It was, it was those, it was sleeves. It was those yeah. sleeves pulled up. Absolutely. And then I think when heat actually uh, premiered, I think I had uh, a small baby at home, so I wasn't seeing anything at the, okay. <laughs> at the theater if it didn't have a Disney princess in it. <laughs> and uh, I, I saw heat uh, for the first time on the small screen, which was um, overwhelming enough, really. Yeah. To uh, to because by that time it 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 didn't stream immediately. It wasn't even streaming back no. then. You know, you had to uh, you had to get a DVD or God help us a VHS. And yeah, well, it was on VHS first, so you had a pan and scan. You had no what there was no widescreen. Pan and scan was the originator of the stupidest rumor of all time in movies that Michael Mann shot. Pacino and De Niro in separate rooms with like stand-ins because they couldn't see the other mm -hmm. actor in silhouette while the close-up was on. So yeah, that, that was my first experience too, Meg. I, I saw heat through the crack of the door walking past my friend's sister's room. Cause she was a notorious, I mean, look, and, and, um, I think the statute of limitations is out because she was a notorious double taper from the VHS store to, to, to have her own collection. So she's okay. You know, it's fine. Um, but I remember just walking past her room, which is at the base of his stairs leading upstairs in his house. And I saw the faces of Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro in the hockey masks as they've just put them on in the, in, in the opening high scene. So we're talking, if I had to hazard a guess, probably about the 11th minute of the film. And one of those seconds and I just stopped because I saw two guys in this gigantic truck um, like with hockey masks on and I saw two two people in in an ambulance with hockey masks on and I was just like what is this and I sort of poked my head in the door while she was watching the movie and then obviously you see the opening scene of heat and I was like what the hell is this movie and so even with that flash it can get you well absolutely the Seeing it in its entirety for the first time uh, made me realize I had I had no idea uh, what it actually was just from hearing people talking about this crime movie, which it is so much more than a crime movie that it's just um, above and beyond. the The moment that you are describing, um, several minutes later, you will tell me which minute this is. <laughs> sure, but uh, watched it with my husband. And uh, there's the the opening sequence with the armored car robbery, armored truck robbery, and uh, they uh, Chris sets off the the shape charge that blows out the doors, and they drag the guards out, the driver and the two guards out of the back, and uh, line them up against the side of this toppled van. And um, my husband looks at these guys who are in the only in this scene for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's the first guard, the one that's staring at Wayne grow uh, with his ears, you know, with his ears ringing and looks just, uh, you know, um, plastered because he's uh, just so, uh, you know, he's, he's had this uh, gigantic yeah. uh, blow to the head. 
<laughs> yeah. his, his ears are ringing. He's disorientated. Right. And we're, I'm sitting there just kind of holding my breath. My fingers are already like clenched <laughs> against digging into my palms. And my husband looks at me and he goes, I know him. <laughs> That's Rick Avery. <laughs> and I said, who is, uh, has become extremely well-known as a stuntman. He and his kids are all stuntmen now. He has been uh, Robert De Niro's stunt double for a while now at the, but he um, also was a stunt coordinator for a lot of films. And before that, he had, um, he ran a dojo in Santa Barbara, California, which uh, is where my husband studied when he was uh, <laughs> studying Kempo Karate. So he's like, that's right. That's right. I'm like, shh. <laughs> you are breaking the dream. You're breaking. And then, and then of course, he goes. Oh, Rick goes down. He goes down. <laughs> oh God, there's a whole bunch of poor kids in Santa Barbara who've grown up be under his tutelage. Who had a completely different experience. That's a new, the newest possible wrinkle. Oh, thank you for that story. That's amazing. Um, so that's my origin story. There's your heat origin story. So back uh taking us back to oh man time is just absolutely flying taking us back to sort of 2018 um 2019 we're rolling up into the end of one heat minute and at the time i had i've since been completely proven wrong but at the time we wanted to bring a conversation together and I was just desperate to talk about heat. Now I had no, had absolutely no understanding of the true breadth of the movie and how it had sort of like solidified itself into movie canon and how so many people had now raised this up as a sacred text until I started doing the podcast. Cause honestly, it was just for me, Meg, I was sitting here going, look, if I just talk to my friends and people I want to talk to about heat, that's enough. And that wasn't, the case it, it it completely changed and it feels like there was this weird universal osmosis that was happening it was, it was just at the same time i was like i want to keep going with this and i want to i want to talk about heat and exclusively dedicate this show to it that michael had started thinking about heat too he'd want he'd finally decided that this is going to happen notes started to happen you know storylines research all those sorts of things that would happen in a michael man ideation session i'm sure you can tell us more about those sorts of things but then you know in one of my the last conversation with him on the show like heat two was going to be a novel it was going to happen at the time we spoke to then one of his then collaborators reed farrell coleman and then it disappeared and so we were all kind of like waiting on bated breath, hoping it wasn't like a Quentin Tarantino. I'm going to make Kill Bill 3. I'm going to make the Vega Brothers. You know, you have those movies that filmmakers will dance around and then they move on to the next thing. Or there's another more important project that they move on to. So when did Heat 2 come into your life this time around? Um, and 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 what what was that meeting and what was that catch up with Michael Mann like to like, all right, look, I've worked with some other authors. I'm I'm figuring out how to get this done. It's not working. Now I'm putting it on your shoulders. Well, <laughs> he didn't say anything like that to me. <laughs> anything else, any, a lot of that totally preceded my yeah. entry into the project. So I can't speak to any of that, but it was um, very end of 2019 that uh, my literary agent said that, yes, he too 
was uh, Michael was wanting to do it, and uh, would would I be interested in speaking to him about it? Um, and I I took a deep breath because who wouldn't? <laughs> uh, being asked to talk to an icon of mine by by then uh, about doing a, a expanding the world of something that you said has become a classic of the film canon. I I paused and um, thought about it, realized what a tremendous responsibility it would be, as well as a terrific privilege. And I think that was, there was one, you know, angel on one shoulder saying, you know, consider <laughs> this, can you really, can you do it justice, et cetera. And then the little devil on my other shoulder whispered, you've always wanted to write a heist novel. You've always <laughs> wanted to write a heist novel. And when would you get a chance like this? And at that point, I just like leaped at it like uh, the airborne troops like <laughs> throwing themselves out of a out of a plane. Folks, and, I think if you want to get a visual of what Meg looks like as we're having this conversation, it's Neil McCauley in the tunnel. Like her eyes are darting. Does she go for Wangro? Does she take you to the airport? And she's, she, she turned that car. That swerve was so fast. It's like 15 seconds. Bang. I'm going to do this. You're right. And fortunately for me, it turned out a whole lot better for, for everybody involved. Meg still is, she's still here to tell the tale. She's still here to tell. Exactly. The so, uh, in between the time uh, I said, yeah, this is something um, spectacular, <laughs> I hope. And the time we got started, COVID landed. Yeah. So we couldn't get together to, uh, to talk about the, about the novel. And we just had to, uh, Michael and I had to start working over the phone and yeah. by email. And I told him off the bat, I knew that this was something uh, not just dear to his heart, but uh, something very important and it could be extremely special. So I wanted to make sure that if we worked together, I could help him realize his ambitions for for the novel. And he had been thinking about it for forever since before the movie was uh, went into production, of course, because he he knew these characters. He uh, he knew the cops. He uh, knew uh, the their uh, who he wanted the the crew to be, and he had uh, been thinking about them, and had put a very tight sliver of their lives on the screen in Heat, which takes place over what three weeks, maybe. Yeah, well, that that was another question. Thank you that it was answered by the book because we had people theorizing it's. It's, is it seven days? Is it the last seven days of Neil McCauley's life? Which I really like that reading, but it was also like the gaps between mm -hmm. us. It's like, oh, this is three weeks. Oh, that's okay, cool. Three weeks, a month. That's the so maximum you're going to see yeah. on screen. And uh, as intense and deep as it is, and you know that every time you watch it, you see something new. It never gets old. It never, no. you never tire of it. Uh, there was so much more that he, Michael uh, saw as uh where these uh, characters had come from and where the survivors of heat would uh, would potentially go. And he uh, was uh, very excited about, uh, about a, a writing that as a novel. And uh, I was too. So um, he had done a ton of research as you are completely unsurprised to hear. <laughs> he, had, uh, he knew, um, 
he uh, knew a lot about the biographies of the, the three major protagonists from the film, uh, Hannah, Macaulay, and uh, Chris. He had written extensive biographies for them, not because it was going to go on the screen or into any dialogue, but uh, so he could give those bios to the actors to help them prep and uh, inform their performances. Um, so there was all this really rich backstory already already there. And uh, why leave it uh, sitting in the door? <laughs> it's, it's those things that us manheads have been talking about for years of like, there is already these rich things for all of the characters that come in and we've spoken to some amazing people in our journey, a great filmmaker and former assistant of Michael Mann, like Justin Lieberman, like remembers Michael asking him to find one segment of someone's backstory. I need you to go to this town in this year and around this factory and tell me stories that happened with this. Cause that's this character's dad, you know, for example. So it's like, that's just one sliver of, you know, probably what ended up being like a 15 or 20 page breakdown of like where this, guy could have lived but we've always known it with these characters and then as this has become a canonical cinematic classic as you said before it's like we hear about you know he wrote it for Ashley Judd too so Charlene has a whole backstory and all these things and you know that was um you know starting right off the bat in the novel um one of my favorite moments is like Chris and Charlene starring in their own little version of Martin Scorsese's Casino like just like rolling I'm like this is this is the blend. It's kind of and and I think people want me to ask, and I'll sort of I don't want you to go into the boring detail, but I think that there was one thing I found in the fusion of you guys collaborating that I really enjoyed is that it had when it needed to move, it had this percussive kind of tempo of a high speed thrilling novel, but also there was this unmistakable. And you could tell it's from like a person who writes screenplays being Michael. Yeah. This unmistakable thing of like, I can actually have, I, I'm almost not even reading anymore. I'm like closing my eyes almost while I'm reading and I'm absorbing it. And there are cinematic spaces and then the novel moves. It's like, okay, here's the space. Here's the setting. Here's the establishing of the scene. And then we get to the story. And it feels like that you guys had this great rhythm right from that moment. I'm like, oh my God, this is Casino, like that's the first thing that I had in my mind, even though it's not a Michael Mann movie, but De Niro was shooting it while he, well, just before he shot Heat, I was just like, this is the kind of like, this is a great entry point into this whole world. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I take all that as a, as a tremendous compliment. <laughs> the idea that, uh, that the page disappears for the reader, there's nothing an author can ask beyond that, that you suddenly don't feel like you are staring at letters and words on a, on a piece of paper uh, that you are, um, in the world where the where the stories is unfolding, watching it alongside uh, alongside the characters, that is um, that's a dream come true for an author, and it was um, that was part of the excitement of getting to work uh, with Michael, who's you know such an extremely accomplished writer um, and has been for for decades, um, because all his experience had been in. Uh, film and television. That's why he was um, interested in collaborating with uh, with the novelist. I mean, he's collaborated uh, extensively yeah, as well. He's, he's a, you know, Eric Roth wrote yes. Insider with him, and you know they had an amazing partnership. He's 
had to collaborate with I mean, how many people wrote Miami Vice episodes? You got to imagine that, like, as the showrunner, essentially executive uh-huh. producer, there's thousands of people that are riding with him along the way, and you know, that's it's a really so yeah. And uh, you know, we're trying to sort kind of you know, as you start to work together, you know, we're kind of uh, you know, he's jumping into the deep end of 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 taking on a new medium. I'm jumping into the into the deep end of of this uh, of this universe of heat and collaborating, which I had not collaborated on a big project before so we're all we're all just kind of like okay hold your breath and dive and it was uh it was great so he sent me the the shooting script for heat which was um not only an absolute treat for me to to read it but to understand like just everything you just said about his um his writing style and his vision and uh, the way that the, that the script itself is absolutely that propulsive, percussive um, uh, staccato when it needs to be uh, uh, slowing down into a little bit of, of, you know, more languorous uh, scenes when, uh, when we need to, uh, to have a view back to, uh, to the the characters uh, lives when they're not on the job and uh, to understand exactly how, vivid and pithy uh his um his writing was because of his expertise in screenwriting and so that we could try to blend our styles and put some of that onto the onto the page of the novel was um was an exhilarating challenge let's put it that way speaking of exhilarating you're traversing 12 years across international borders and especially as i think especially as parts like three, four, um, uh, uh, sorry, part three, because we're in the depths with Chris and then part six, as things are ramping up, because it's like the convergence of everything that's happening with all of the characters that are still in play and we're bouncing around and those things, you're, you're, you're bouncing to other international locations. How is it to like getting in the headspace of like, okay, cool. Right now I'm, I'm going to bounce from Las Vegas in 1988. And I'm going to go into Chicago, sort of almost like hallowed criminal law turf, you know, like you go there, you bounce back to LA, you then bounce off into Seattle, LA, like into Paraguay. And then we come back. Were they, when you're approaching those different time zones, those different lenses, I would imagine that you've got like a whole bunch of different things that you're thinking about, just knowing the research that you would do, you know, you're a law grad, there's a whole, there's a Chicago is a famous law or lack of law and order city. So that must have been such a fun place to go and sort of say, because that like the late eighties is really the last death rows of that, like classic Chicago sort of corrupt Chicago, if you like. So tell me how fun that was, because that's the thing I've been thinking about. I'm like, it must've just been fun to like put on a new, it's almost like I'm putting on a new brain today. Cause I've got this, I do have this connective tissue, but I get to go and play in some of these different classic worlds along the way. Was that something that you were working towards or was that an experience that you had? It was, uh, it was a great stretch for me. I, my novels as thrillers tend to have very tight timelines. Yes. Um, you know, to take place, uh, over a few months at most often, sometimes over a few days. So um, to be uh, given this gigantic canvas of, um, of decades and continents, it was, um, 
it was uh, it was it was delightful. It was um, intense. There's a lot of research. You will be totally unsurprised to, to <laughs> know that uh, Michael Mann's reputation for exacting research is extremely accurate. <laughs> but it was um, it was wonderful, and of course your experience as a reader is different from the 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 author's experience because we don't we don't write it in three days we have it it took you know 18 months so we've got time to to go in and out and uh rewriting is the secret that uh that i'm telling everybody but about now because that's how you get it to, oh, to the course. place where it will see it look like it if ideally it feels effortless and nobody sees the 25 drafts that you've done but i i i loved it um also in podcasts too if you if you just need to i need to do that again i need to do that again I need to redraft but all the all the settings for the novel are um are places that either Michael or I or um, most of them, both of us have um, have been to uh, yes. or, or lived, lived in. I lived in Los Angeles. I, I, I worked in Chicago. Uh, Michael, of course, was born there and grew up there, uh, lives in L.A. now. Uh, he had been to Ciudad del Este uh, on the triple border with the Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay uh, when he filmed Miami Vice. So he had been absolutely captivated in the most uh, exciting and <laughs> shocked way by uh, by the world of uh, of that uh, of that part of the uh, you know that part of the continent, and uh, it was great in that he could give me his impressions, and if uh, I needed more, he'd say, "Okay, well, uh, you know." Here, uh, here's two thousand photos that we shot when we were. Uh, <laughs> And, vi- and, vi- and videos of location scouting um, down there. So I, I had every everything I could possibly want or need to know from morning to till, till midnight about uh, about what the city looked like. And he could talk about all the people he'd met um, there. I, I'm trying not to give away any spoilers, of, of course. Um, but uh, there 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 is a scene on the high seas and. Uh, where someone um, climbs up a rope ladder onto a, onto a gigantic ship. And I had uh, said, uh, I really want to make, this has, this has to be, you know, it's only, it's only a moment. It needs to be, you know, it's just a paragraph, but we want it to feel realistic about what it would be like to climb up, uh, climb up off from a pilot, pilot boat onto a, onto an oil tanker. And Michael's like, ah, I'll send you some. I'll send you some photos of me doing that. <laughs> Let me tell you what it's like. So, <laughs> we'll be right back after this quick break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you're writing, Meg, do you have, you know, obviously you're consuming all of this stuff. Are you a, uh, knowing obviously you're a visual person too, as well as a writer, are you a, are you a collagist in your home office? Do you like print things out and have things on the wall to inspire you? Do you have playlists for music to happen? Do you have like any key things? Cause I, I wonder, you know, when you all the way back to like the heat shooting script reading and how rich that was for you and how much that that was an instigator of where you wanted to go with a novel was that like do, do you find yourself like doing a bit of craft and pasting some inspiration on the wall is that your process occasionally i'll paste paste up uh photos uh generally have a playlist for every novel i write and try to make them extremely distinct unless there's a comp unless there's a character carrying over who has a particular taste in music and for this novel, I was in a unique position um, in that I could just uh, have, I, I could literally have heat Eight. running in uh, <laughs> one window or on the TV if I needed to uh, to refresh my memory or have a, give myself a deep uh, vision of the, the vibe I was, I was going for. So I, I mean, who's luckier than to, uh, Start afresh with characters, but take off from the performances of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer and everybody else in the in the whole film. So I had them in my 
in my imagination for the whole time. And that is, uh, that's a, that's a pretty fun thing. <laughs> I must imagine that, you know, top 10 bucket list things of all time is getting to write any Vincent Hanna dialogue. <laughs> it is just the, universally, everyone has said, it is just so fun to have more Vincent Hanna lines that you can now take off in your worst Al Pacino voice because you can read the novel and hear Vincent talking and saying these things and intimidating uh, intimidating informants or intimidating suspects, you know, just more Vincent Hanna. Um, and and we get so much more of Neil, you know, I don't want to go into, knowing that you don't want to go into spoiler territory, but that's, you know, we get so much more of, we get so much more of Neil. We get so much more of Vincent, but the, you know, the the big one, which is obviously so tragic, because it's unimaginable that anyone else could or should be able to play him. But Val Kilmer's Chris, in this, is just like, oh my god, the what if, the what if of all time is like getting to see him do everything that you guys get him to do in this novel, because it is thrilling and exciting, and um, it, it's incredibly special. Well, thank you. It was uh, incredibly <laughs> special to to write it, and of course, readers are um, free to uh, imagine Val Kilmer from Heat as uh, as Chris as they read this this novel with that um, studied, blank, vacant, lethal stare that he can turn on uh, to. Uh, to intimidate everyone and hide anything that's going on behind <laughs> those uh, those beautiful blue eyes, with his uh, panther-like ability to <laughs> to go from complete stillness to um, just rocking and rolling uh, at the drop of a hat. You know that uh, he is ready. He is charged. He is uh, he is he is on, and uh, it's. Um, it's uh you know please indulge yourselves <laughs> if you yeah. if you so choose well it's uh, it's the it's the thing meg that you talk about it's like for folks who can i don't imagine that many people would see heat too and not have some passing familiarity with heat right to to read it but you guys obviously my do. mom <laughs> your mom yeah that's great that's fantastic like i, I love to hear that i'm also like well in a way i'm sort of jealous because they get a fresh, they get to get their imagination to do whatever they want. Even if they have no familiarity with it, they get to go, okay, how, who are these characters in their head? But in the positive sense, for us who are so familiar with it, like what you just described in Val Kilmer, I just think about, you know, I think about in the high scene where he walks out of the bank, Michael's in the car, Neil's almost to the car, and there's a flash where Chris smiles at Michael because Dorito's in the car. Tom Sizemore's like banging the seat, like, let's go. Yeah, we did it. And then he smiles. And then the that U-Haul van passes. And then there's Drucker and Casals standing there. And the smile evaporates. And he's he's immediately firing an assault rifle in the street. Like that. That's Chris. No hesitation. No, no hesitation. hesitation. Not like even a, it's less than a second. His gun is up and firing. Not even like I'm going to get into a position of safety. It's full assault mode. And so you have that character in your head and they're so vivid that it's just like they're putting on this play. So in your mind while you're doing this, which is, I think, a huge benefit. Interest. Thank you. Uh, more interesting than uh, perhaps even 
taking the story to all these different settings was moving back and forth uh, in time in the character's yes. life. So 12 years is a big difference, uh, especially for for young men and women. And uh, the Chris of 1988 uh, is uh, is different from the Chris of 2000. And uh same for Vincent Hanna. Yes. So that was, it was important to work on that, to keep that in mind and uh, to, uh, to get it right. And the, the dialogue, you mentioned the dialogue. Thank you for, for enjoying Vincent's uh, dialogue <laughs> in the novel. Of course, that is something that we worked on very hard and it was extremely important to Michael that I really didn't just, you know, work with him to write lines, but understood why these people would say speak the way they do um how it comes out of their character how it comes out of uh of how they've grown up and who they are so uh working on that is um it, it's it's more than quips it's uh it's a reflection of everything that they bring to the job and to the you know is evoked by their personality and it was also awfully fun <laughs> and and every setting right because vincent's so i think people really understand it when they watch heat in a theater with people like I just, you know, exactly as you said, like there's those huge langorious moments where we get to just be in this sort of quiet, still cinematic vibe. And then to help to, to, to change the tempo of the movie or to lighten things up, especially after there's some dark moments or some grim moments, like Vincent Hanna just plays like, like you put him in front of an audience, like people are howling. And not in a bad, not in a way that like they're laughing at it. They're just like, this is the fun, like he, this guy is like an energy surge. And so you, you, you also have to balance that with the book. Can I ask you about a character? Because this is a character, the bet, and this is where we've all had this, no matter how familiar you are. Um, that one of the key antagonists of this book is Wardell, Otis Wardell, a character that I think is one of the most grotesque, disgusting Michael Mann villains um, in the best possible way. He's completely and wholly unpredictable in the worst possible way. He's also very predictable when it gets his hands on a victim um, and it's all extremely grim and you know that it's going to be very bad. I mean, that character is such a phenomenal character. And I wondered because I've asked so many people as we've been talking about the novel and enjoying it, like I imagine this big, I can't I can't put a, a face to him necessarily, but he's disgusting. And all I can see is that he's hulking. He's just big. I just had this sense when I was reading him that he was big. And I wonder in your mind's eye, did you have a vision of what this guy like specifically looked like in your mind? Did you have a picture of him in your head when you were writing him? Because he was he's such a thorn. He's this gross, low-level criminal, has a crew, he's extremely masochistic. And he he just thrills to inflict pain and be in control, but I just loved putting this wraith, this another you know people have talked about him like a wangra. I'm like he's more than a wangra. He feels like a Francis Dollarhide to me. Like he's like the mixture of those two things, you know, Manhunter's villain. So I I I wondered what you were thinking about with that in your mind. It's it's really interesting that you picture him as hulking. He's he is. Um very sparingly described he is i know i've been i've been searching i've been sneaking trying to find <laughs> physical descriptions um we know that he is um he's fast 
that he's uh, physically adept, that he is extremely strong. And um, I'm just going to say that the longer I've been a writer, the more I've realized that you just need a few telling details uh, and let and let readers, let the, yeah, the readers, readers do will whatever. fill in yeah. uh, what is uh, what is important to them. Jeffrey Deaver, who was uh, you know wrote the Bone Collector, all the Lincoln Rhyme novels, he says the theater of the mind is more powerful than anything else. It's more powerful than a bucket of blood. You don't need to show <laughs> all that kind of gore on the screen necessarily because. Um, you uh, you offer you prick somebody with a scalpel or whatever, so to speak, and everything that uh, people's own fears and uh, visions will come flooding in and uh, animate the character in their minds. So um, Otis is uh, the the one characteristic that is mentioned repeatedly is that he has a scar through his eyebrow, yeah. and uh, in his own mind that's fine because. Uh, he, women in bars look at it and see him as someone who might need a little TLC. <laughs> they think he's a tough, that he's a bad boy who might need a little TLC. So he is, um, he's grim, he's bad, but he's charismatic as well. Uh, Cause he's drawn a crew to him. He's successful. That's it. He's, he, uh, he, he demonstrates power and that's um, that, uh, that, projects a sense that someone is very big um yeah so i, I I'm, I'm just i'm just enjoying listening to you saying that uh, that you picture him as hulking <laughs> i just i just imagine because there's something great i know this is such a silly thing in the grand scheme of everything but i love about heat that michael mann is like unafraid to show the size of men like because groups of guys your buddies your friends family members like there's tall there's short guys big guys dumpy guys you know shredded guys who hit the gym all the time etc and i love that in sort of neil's crew he's they're all quite neil's crew are kind of all like almost similarly the same height chris is probably the tallest in his crew but vincent's the shortest guy in his crew you know he and schwartz are like the two shorter guys when consiles maybe just like a, a hair taller than vincent but Neil and Vincent are almost the same height and they always felt to me like when they, when they have their showdown and things like that, like, like it was like mano in mano, like Drucker is massive. You know, Michael T. Williamson is a big guy. And so like, he's, he, I love the sort of weird alchemy of like different sizes. Not everyone is the same height. There's a bit of that. And the imagine, the thing in my imagination that ticked it over is that like Wardell being this guy that was huge and uh, hugely charismatic and charming and, uh, you know, had that kind of, uh, cult leader quality of like bringing people together with him um but i just imagine that he was big because like he's he he gets out of like ambush after ambush and i just feel like he's got to have he's got to be strong and big and can bust through a door and throw someone in front of him or i don't know i just was imagining yeah, something he is he's physically he's phys physically, powerful physically powerful and um he has a presence that's extremely intimidating which it's uh, it's legitimate to infer some <laughs> significant size from that. Yeah, and and as the as the years pass for him, he he mentions in his own mind that he um, he's uh, he's bulked up uh, bulked up a bit, and um, he thinks it's all muscle. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I love that in the writing is like he thinks it's all muscle, but everyone, including the author, is like Otis. You've uh, you've let yourself go. Um, that was a, one of my favorite descriptions in the whole book is his office as we meet him in the in part six and his 
in the hotel that he's running in his new business. And I just could, I could almost feel the moisture and the stickiness on the carpet of that place. It was just chilling. Well, let me tell you, (laughs) as we were uh, writing that section of the novel, um, again, Michael wanted to uh, really understand that the world that at that point Otis Wardell is working in, he uh, it's, this is not a huge spoiler to say he, he owns a string of um, no tell motels in um, in Los Angeles uh, and uh, Michael wanted to get a a real sense of um, what the vibe was like there late at night where uh, these these motels are quite busy and uh, who the um, who the clientele is and uh, to do that uh, we um, we rode out with two LAPD sergeants late one night and um, went down into the the neighborhoods where all these motels exist in real life and uh, spent spent several hours seeing what, uh, you know, the commerce on the street (laughs) that takes place after all the car dealerships uh, have closed for the night and the the college students are back in their dorms up the road at USC and um, there's a whole whole new set of of people out uh, earning their keep, shall we say on the on the corners i can't tell you how much i love that you're doing ride-alongs for the novel i can't tell you how much i enjoy you guys like let's go down there that seems like a good idea all of us are like no no meg why why are you going down there to this nightlife but it's it's completely on brand we didn't get out of the vehicle of course (laughs) of course you wouldn't i wouldn't want you to i don't want to i don't i definitely don't want you to have gotten out of the vehicle um I think now I've completely destroyed a galley's edition of the book. Just so you know, I want to show you here while I've got it. I've, I've like turned it into Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, you know, thing where I've like made notes, got quotes. This is you can't, like, everybody can't see that my, I'm my jaw has literally, has literally fallen I've, that I've, he's I've, got uh, about 50 tiny little post-it notes <laughs> well yeah you can have this thing like the spines on a porcupine <laughs> there's more there's there's more notes in there too so i'm i'm trying to think of how many times i've read it but one of the things that really struck me and i it's when we see into the bat we see into neil's previous life and i don't think it's necessarily a, a a spoiler in the story because a part of the novel takes place in 1988 and neil and his crew are working like they're a coast-to-coast crew but one of the things that really struck me and I actually was doing it on a long drive back from vacation the other day and I was listening to the audiobook in the car. I was like, I don't want to listen to a podcast. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to the Heat 2 audiobook. And I was really struck by more connections, whether they're like, you know, you don't sort of make them really explicit and underline them in the book, but it was something that really struck me is that Neil and Vincent as both of them kind of their own failed fathers. And, uh, uh, and it was something that like really emotionally hit a chord with me on the latest listen to the, even though I've kind of unpacked each part as we do, as I just have a desire to do with things that I love is to like, look everywhere, look up in the cornices, like get into the vents. You know, I want to find out how they're all put together because they mean a lot to me, but I was listening to it this time and i just thought 
what's it like again these characters that michael describes as like there's no two people who are more alike in the whole universe like we think we know that by the end of heat and i think if you've never read the book you're quite happy but i i was really particularly struck with that failed fatherhood in both of them because it felt like something that absolutely colored how each of these men live their lives and we see it with vincent because he obviously lives beyond heat but it, to to see that Neil had had something similar in his life, how how is it to go and paint the brushes with these characters and fill in the gaps and find those even further synergies between them and, and, and do it in such a delicate way that can like have an emotional resonance? When you're writing that, is that a huge challenge? It is. Um and the, the writing process uh, goes back and forth. And, uh, and just uh, briefly, I'll say that uh, the longer that we worked on the book, the, the, the tighter the writing became as far as, um, I don't know how other writing partnerships work. I mean, they can work in a million different ways, but uh, Michael and I would each start, you know, like doing a section of an outline or, uh, you know, notes on, on this and then, writing roughing out uh you know one of the sections and uh by the end we were passing chapters back and forth uh pages back and forth um 50 emails a day here's 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 this paragraph um here's another pass on this paragraph what do you think but that's how you get to um you get to drill down to the core of of um who these people are and i do think of them as people not just uh not just characters and the thing that is uh special about um about turning it into a novel or uh, or, or writing a screenplay whatever is that ideally you are you are showing how these um these events unfold. You're not just telling people that, you know, uh, Vincent's father was in, you know, was injured uh, and uh, wasn't really there for him. Uh, didn't, you know, Neil's, Neil's father abandoned his children. You can, you can say that, but it doesn't, um, it have, doesn't have any of the same kind of impact as having them show in action, how that's affected their lives and how it affects the lives of the, of the, the people they love uh, in the next generation going forward and that's what's the that's what's the the beauty and magic of a of a novel or or a movie is um is revealing that through through scenes and um showing how it affects uh neil and vincent and how the people that 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 they love affect them and uh you know how it goes around and around and uh changes the story (laughs) so to speak but i think think the the best compliment i can give it is that it gives it's, it doesn't change any, for me, it didn't change any characters in an irrevocable way. Like it didn't change anything. It just was like another lens. It was like another, oh, here's another thing. This is another thing that crystallizes the thing that I love. So that's a huge compliment that I can give. Well, thank you. That was, that's the trick in a prequel, of course. You don't just want it to, you know, 
dramatize uh, little bits that you've uh, may have seen in the movie. You want it to, it has to have its own uh, organic storyline that uh, shows how the, uh, how the people that you know and love or hate become who they are <laughs> and how uh, others in their lives um, survive or don't because of their connection with them. There's another great antagonistic character in Chris's life uh, as he's making his new life in Paraguay, Claudio, um, who we've talked about is a complete drip lord, I think is uh, what the kids would say these days, is a guy who like dresses flagrantly and has this attitude and is also um, much in the same way as, uh, much in the same way as Otis Wardell, uh, extremely charming. Um, has a lot of people sort of sycophantically sucking up to him with his wealth and his power. Um, and so I, I, I wonder how much fun you had with Otis, who you write very sparingly. Was it fun to flip that on its head and write very loquaciously about every outfit and every piece of drip? Because I, that, that's one thing. It's like, you can like, you know, the, you know, the cuts of collars you know, the sheen of silks, you know, like it's, it, it must be fun to like play with that, to go in this moment, I don't need to say anything, but so much of this character is about affectation. So I get to say everything. I had to say every outfit, every earring. Absolutely. Every, yes. Claudio Chen is the, <laughs> uh, the um, incipient uh, crime Lord of a, uh, of a Taiwanese uh, family in Par in Paraguay. And he was a completely new character. So I, I think that this was just playing around and it stuck uh, that I was kind of like, okay, who is this guy? He's young, he's handsome. Um, how is he going to surprise Chris uh, when, when he walks, you know, when he steps in front of him? And I thought, well, he's, uh, he's dressed like Michael Jackson. Why the heck not? And uh, from then on, once you get that, then then I'm like, okay, does this reveal something about him? Am I going to cut all that out? Are we going to, are we going to, are we going to keep it in? Um, uh, and I thought, no, he, he does. He's hugely, uh, he does have a lot of affectation. He loves clothes. He's outrageous, but, um, and that's him, but he knows that that also throws people off. Yes. That people yeah, will a, take him um, less seriously than they should. And he can use that as camouflage because he is um, he is uh, over the top, but he is also smart and ruthless, and um, you better watch out for him. <laughs> you certainly should. I have to ask now, you're writing this novel. It's been kind of a wonderful couple of years because prior to the release of Heat 2, we had like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novelization, so Tarantino self-novelized. Um, the expansion of that because that's what most people were fascinated by is like what am i going to get that's different from the thing that i love and so for some people you get these great expansions you get these deeper thoughts you get these alternate riffs on the same scenes where he got to sort of change it or you know take it back and do something slightly different with it and so everyone was like excited and you know one of the questions that he continued to get was like man you added scenes like this you know there's great dialogue scenes between you know steve mcqueen and rick dalton like couldn't that have been in the movie or could that be you know could you shoot that again and add it on netflix or something and you have those sorts of things and i wonder because michael has made this as a novel there was a time where it was like it's going to be a novel and that was all that it was going to be and then all of a sudden michael's like no i have every intention of making this as a film are you surprised? <laughs> no, 
I'm not surprised. I'm like, this is a, like the second I read it, the second I read the, like, not just the prologue because the prologue is heat, but as soon as I was in the chapter, I'm like, oh, this is irresistible. He would wants to make it. So was there a point, was there a nexus point where you guys had like getting close to finishing the book or you're getting close and you're like, oh, actually what I'm doing is I'm, <laughs> is I'm writing the like, I'm writing the Bible of a future screenplay. Was there a point for you that it like had a change or was it always like, no, I'm writing this as a novel as a proof of concept and it's going to be a film. We never talked about a screenplay yeah. ever. It was, uh, we were, <laughs> we were focused on this massive project that, and he especially uh, wanted to make it uh, the best novel that it could possibly be. Yes. So that was it all of, all the way of course i was uh, trying to see it in my mind as uh, cinematically as possible but not because i thought we were going to turn it into a <laughs> you know, it was going to turn it into a screenplay but because i think that's a really um gives readers a really rich emotional experience yes and so, so and so now that it's unsurprising is it cra is it even crazier now that that thing that you love you've helped craft what the cinematic expansion of this thing is in that in both languages you know in in the language of novels and and now potentially in the language of a movie is that something that's even like oh my god it's another thing i remain terrifically excited by this whole <laughs> uh this whole project and and absolutely honored that i'm uh, that i'm that i'm part of it and uh who knows but uh what's going to happen and you've given some people the impossible task as well, Meg. We've even had an impossible task of trying to fantasy cast Heat 2 in our minds, thanks to what you've written. Yeah, so I, now... listen, I listen to, uh, <laughs> to at least one of the, uh, the parts. Yeah, so we're, we're now like, who the heck could do this? You know, you're, I, don't, I think a lot of people get fixated on uh, just casual for people like, oh, who could ever play a De Niro again? Or who could ever play a Pacino again? Because we know that Michael's not a big fan of the digital de-aging technology and those sorts of things he's not going to play that game but i i genuinely think as we talked about with val i'm like you don't just you know i'm wearing my val t-shirt she can see my val heat shirt yes. right now uh, i'm like you you can't make this guy up he's as beautiful as it gets and as lethal as it gets and there's not too many actors that i immediately say beautiful and lethal just <laughs> roll off the tongue like val Kilmer was a spec it is and was a special entity at the time that he made this movie well, my uh, my job is to uh, is to bring Chris to life on the page and do that. <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the brilliance of, uh, of writing a novel. You are unconstrained by by anything except your own imagination and uh, can take it uh, wherever and whenever uh, you want the story to go. After writing the book, do you, has your, has any of the moments of the film changed for you? And what I mean by that is, did you have a favorite moment of the film before you wrote the book or a favorite scene? And then now that you've written it, do you have a, has that changed? I've added uh, scenes from the film that uh, really just Burrowed all the way, all the way in. I mean, you, the the opening sequence with the um, armored truck robbery, where uh, that 
percussive score comes in and you see uh, Chris and, and Neil uh, in the truck with their hockey masks on and uh, you just know something big is just about to to go down and you you can't even breathe but that was just you know the hairs on the back of my neck still stand up even describing that but writing the novel now the moment when Charlene waves Chris off when she's standing on the balcony drucker's inside waiting for her to uh, to tell him to come up and there's that 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 little wave that little blackjack dealers wave off and there's everything there's everything in that moment and ashley judd just does it so beautifully the 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 look that comes that passes across her face as she as she realizes it uh, that no matter what she's going to do to her own future here, this is and this guy that is just such a mess. She loves him. She just loves Chris, and he's the father of her child. And she is not going to uh, not going to betray him. She can't. She's gonna she's gonna risk everything to to uh, to try to let him uh, let him escape. That there's just so much in that, and the way that the, that Chris looks back up at her, and uh, his face just falls, and he can't show it beyond because he realizes that he is in the middle of a trap and he just has to has to hold it together even though he's just about to bleed to death <laughs> so it's um, <laughs> it's pretty incredible it's um the great bilga abiri said blake if all cinema was lost and we needed to teach the world about how what movies can do in just a few moments he's like that scene on that balcony is the scene that i would choose that's his like that's his time capsule scene. And um, since he said that, I'm like, I, I couldn't be in greater chorus with anyone than about that scene. Cause it, it is everything. It's all that mounting stuff. And I've, I've now watched heat once since reading the novel. Um, and that scene rings true. The Chris and Charlene scenes ring so much truer. And I, that this is something that when we were in the process of doing one hit minute, I had no idea of that because I'm not a I'm not a gambler, um, except for a little cheeky punt on uh, Australian NRL football now and then. But that's uh, that's 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 neither here nor there. But that blackjack wave off was you know something that someone put into my lexicon. Like I think almost the show had nearly ended. We had an email from a fan that was like, "Oh, it's a blackjack dealer's wave." That's how I've always seen it. And I'm like, "Oh my god, Chris, the gambler." Um, this guy, you know, that's who he is. Um, but I just want to say a huge thank you for coming onto the show. It's really incredibly special um, to have you because it would feel incomplete without you. And we're nearly at 200 episodes of One Heat Minute. And so there's nearly 200, you know, there's probably 150 odd hours of people uh, really 
gushing about this film in and and pouring themselves through all of its little portals and you've got to play in the world and uh i think contribute to the law so i'm just really grateful and i just want to say a huge thank you for your time oh it was my pleasure thank you so much for uh inviting me on it's a real it's a real treat and a real honor And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible. Cause like, if you, if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else has even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties there are films of his that i hold very dear fearless uh you know uh, the mosquito coast i will fight somebody if they talk bad about the mosquito coast it's man i love that movie but in general i just think he is a special filmmaker a smart lyrical um hallucinatory filmmaker he's a very dreamy filmmaker and i don't think he gets his due you know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment. In, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see, 10 of those, you know? <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything, and God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I, I am not, uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching 
a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.